So it's not working, so they're just cueing me, but guess what? You don't need a video to know God's word, right? So, <laughs> these videos can be a helpful tool to understand some things that are harder to understand, especially if you come from a non-Christian background, you're unfamiliar with this, but you, you don't need this. The, the 99% of all Christians who ever lived never had such a thing as a production team creating a video um, to help you understand certain themes. They're helpful, but we don't need it. And we have something better. We have God's word, and we could go straight to it. Now, tonight, we're actually going to be focusing on chapter 3, but we, under, we need to understand the context but let me, of chapter 2 to understand chapter 3. Let me kind of give you a teaser of where we're going if you ever suffered in your life, which you have because you've lived and you're here, and this world is full of trials and troubles, one of the most common questions that you would reasonably ask is, why God? Why God? Why this hard? Why this long? Why me? Are you near? Do you care? Are you real? Because if you're good and you're real, I mean, you wouldn't let me go through this, right? And so the logic goes, and I have been there so many times. In today's passage in chapter 3, it's a wonderful, true story that shows where God is when we're in the midst of the fire. God answers some tough questions that we all ask, but he has a question for you. God asks, to what extent will you be faithful to me? To what extent will you still be faithful to me? Let, let's go to chapter 2 real quick. If you want to, you can turn in your Bible and you can kind of glance along as I go, but I'm going to just retell it as a story. King Nebuchadnezzar, big bad, he is King Nez, he, Neb, not Nez, Nev, the movie, okay. He is the most powerful man in the world. He is le le leading the world's superpower at the time, and he is shook with a dream, a, a vision that he does not understand. It's frightening him, and he doesn't know what it means at all. So he calls all of his men, his, his astrologers, his wise men, his sorcerers, and all of the land to come and to not just interpret his dream, because that's easy. You can just kind of make up whatever you want, but not just interpret, but to tell him what he dream dreamt. So they're like, King, tell us what you dreamt, and then we'll tell you. And he's like, no, 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 I know what you're doing. I know what you're doing. No, no, no. You tell me what I dreamt, and then, then tell me what it means. And they can't, because who can do such a thing? And neither can Daniel. But Daniel knows a guy <laughs> who knows everything, just like that movie just said. And so they seek the Lord. Daniel prays, and God gives Daniel spiritual insight to interpret not just the dream, but actually to know and experience the dream himself. So he goes back to King Nebuchadnezzar, and he tells him the dream. And what's interesting is you'll actually see that King Nebuchadnezzar, he tells all the wise men and the astrologers and the sorcerers that if you can't tell me my dream and interpret, I'm going to tear your bodies limb from limb and all your kids and children. <laughs> like, he, he is very brutal. What he is inside is reflected outside. King Nebuchadnezzar is a beast inside, and later on you'll see he'll become like a beast because that's what his heart is like. And, but David, I mean Daniel, goes to him and tells him the dream. This is what the dream was like. Nebuchadnezzar had this giant statue, this golden statue, and it was in multiple pieces. And he represents the first part of the statue. Then there will be a kingdom that will come after him. That's actually the Medes and the Persians who will come right after him. 
And then after them, they will fall apart. Then the Greeks, then the Romans, and then finally a little stone comes out of nowhere and smashes into that statue. It crumbles into dust, and that represents the kingdom of God that will come one day and end all kingdoms, and that will be the only kingdom left. That's really good news. We live in pretty scary times. We have Russia, Ukraine, China, Taiwan. We have the never-ending wars of who should be president and how we're going to save this country. Wouldn't it be so nice to just have one kingdom with a perfect ruler who doesn't have a past? (laughs) We don't have to pick the lesser of evils. We can trust his heart. That's going to be our future one day. The kingdom of God will come and will reign forever. And he's not Republican. He's not Democratic. King Jesus is going to reign. And that's the picture that Nebuchadnezzar sees. He's shook by it, and he responds with this. Verse 46, if you're looking in your Bibles. And then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar is giving props to Yahweh because he sees that he is not like his impotent gods who could not give him an answer in his moment of great need. Just a heads up, Ian and um, Joey, if you could put the timer back there, that would help me so I don't preach for two hours. So that would be helpful because I don't have my phone up here. So just one hour timer. Thanks. Just kidding. All right. But notice also King Nebuchadnezzar's words. Though he's praising God, he's not doing it personally, but as a third party. You guys see that? He's talking about Daniel's God. Later, that's going to change, but he needs more humbling to do. Now, we're going to jump into chapter 3. So that was a far, uh, that was not good to to represent chapter 2. There's a lot there, so please look at it yourself. Uh, But that was a a decent summary. Now, let's look at chapter 3, because it's a shocking turn. Sometime later, Nebuchadnezzar, even though he was humbled and realized that God is the only God, and he's not, he forgets his finitude. He forgets how weak he truly is. And sometimes what happens is when we have a revelation of our weakness, we, in, un, unless we continue in that trajectory of greater humility and worship of the true God, we actually then over-respond over and correct. And, and what we see Nebuchadnezzar do is actually he does the opposite. He forgets his dream. He creates a giant statue likely of himself and, of himself and calls everyone to worship him. Now, put this in your mind. The statue is huge. Don't just think about like a nice little statue you'd see in a quaint garden, but we're talking 90 feet. So an eight-story building. This thing's massive. He had a lot of time to be able to reconsider, hey, should I really do this? And what he does is he puts it in this giant field, and he creates a worship band, like legit worship band, to play. And whenever he plays, all the people, especially the officials of Babylon, would have to bow to it and worship it. And I know if you're around, you you would want to tap Neb on the shoulder and ask the king, do you remember the last chapter about a statue being crushed by the stone? Like, this is not going to go well, Neb. I mean, are 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 you awake? Do you get this? And it's so easy for us to read the Bible and make fun of these characters, like, oh, Eve, I'm going to punch you in the face one day when I see you in heaven. You know, like, you know, we, we have these, like, attitudes, cavalier attitudes that we're, like, we're so clever and smart, we would never do what they do. 
because we're so humble and we're so, we're never hypocritical, right? We always do what we say we'll do. But Neb is not so different from us. He has this radical encounter with God and, and show, realizes how weak and humble he, he truly is and how, how much he's not in control. And then he turns right back against it. That kind of sounds like camp, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I was a youth pastor before. I remember taking a group of kids up to Hume Lake in California 12 year, uh, 11 years ago. And I remember one of these, two of these kids who would come every year. I was a new youth pastor, so it was the first time I had them. And on decision night, Thursday night, there's all this emotion. And, and they get right with God, and they're crying. And they're like, man, it feels so good. It's good to do this every year. <laughs> Did you hear that? They're like, this is a ritual. It's like a giant confession box. They, like, they pour out their heart. They feel good. They feel cleansed. And all right, all right, back to it. And I never saw them again. Neb's just like us, right? How many of you have had an encounter with God? You realize a truth. You're exposed and you're humbled. And then you forget it the next day. You know what I'm saying? I'm not, I'm not shaming you. I, I've done that so many times. I've had times where I've literally had these powerful encounters with God growing up and then looking at porn that very night. Because there's, there's, there's layers to be done in our hearts, right? It's not so simple. There's layers of flesh, layers of pride, layers of unbelief that just takes, takes time. And Neb is like us. In chapter 2, the word image is repeated over and over again, talking about the statue. And then chapter 3, the word image is repeated over and over again. Does anyone here remember the first time we hear the word image in the Bible? God made people in what? His image. Image is, whenever you study the Bible, the first time you see a word appear, that's a really, really important kind of clue to kind of go back to, to kind of see what the original context is. See, man, all of us, when I say man, men and women here, we were made in the image of God. Unlike anybody else, we represent his likeness. We are like him, not like no other creature. We actually get to share his role with him, co-rulers with him. And whatever was going on in Eden, God tasked mankind to spread that shalom, that goodness throughout the whole world. We, we are given a unique privilege to co-rule with God. That was something he gave us. And no other creature has the access of this kind of intimacy that we get with God. So that's the original design of being made in the image of God, though there's more than that, but not less than that. And instead of Neb humbling himself into the purpose of why he exists to image God, because part of the image of God that I didn't mention is that people are supposed to look at you and get a sense of what God is like. That's part of being in the image of God. So the way you relate with people, re re relate with your children if you have kids, that just shows a picture of what God is like. And Neb is doing the very opposite. Instead of helping his life be a pointer to what God is actually like, his life is now exists to point to himself so that people would worship him and to pay attention to him. And now he's making statues of his image. And man has always been like this since the beginning in the garden. I, I want to propose to you, and I know this is going to sound offensive if you're not very self-aware, especially but we're not very different from Nebuchadnezzar. See, you're, you're far too clever to try to demand people to worship you. But the very root 
of that desire is still there. You know, we've always wanted control, glory, self-glory, power, self-determination, right? For example, so common in our culture for us to say that we want to figure out who we are and then be true to ourselves, authentic to ourselves. And I, I don't say that in a mocking way, but in a way that so often, we're, we're, instead of letting our creator tell us who we are, we are the creation telling God and others who we are. And then often, we can get, take another step and demand people to respect and honor what we declare who we are. And if they don't, they don't love you. See, all of us long to be like God in some way, whether it's just calling your own shots. You don't want someone to tell you what to do. See, the heart of what Neb wants is worship. Verse six, see, see, see his heart, it, sh- it shows here. And whoever does not follow, fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a fiery furnace. Listen, the word worship is repeated 11 times in this chapter. Neb knows what he's doing. He is trying to get people to worship him. And throughout the book of Daniel, we're always going to see a counterfeit. Whatever God creates, the enemy wants to create a counterfeit version. And if you look throughout this book, you're going to see counterfeit king, counterfeit kingdom, counterfeit God, counterfeit worship, counterfeit worship band, counterfeit culture, counterfeit hell later on in this chapter. And God's people will be offered this counterfeit and it will be packaged in a very appealing way. Look at verse 7. You should see this worship. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipes, I'm going to skip all those, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. He wants the worship of all peoples, nations, and languages. What does that sound like? Didn't it sound like that's what's only due for God? Every tribe, tongue, nation? He wants that for himself. And again, I I just want to propose that I'm more like Nebuchadnezzar than I'd like to admit. (laughs) I'm not the hero of a story like we often tend to read ourselves in the Bible. Oh, we're never like Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, let me just give you an example. How often have you got upset if someone else got credit for something that you did or thought of? You know what I'm saying? Or how jealousy arises if someone else is praised for something we think we're good at. For example, where's Ori? Ori. Where's Ori? Hey, you played and sang wonderfully last night. Great job. I didn't know you did that. That's cool. I've known Ori for three years. We have a complicated relationship. The first time I met him, he yelled at me while I was preaching. It's great. Great. We laughed. He laughed. It was great. No, just kidding. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you here who was, who were in last night's talent show, or Hume show, just had a thought to yourself, hey, what about me? <laughs> was I not good? Right? If, we, if I say he was good, then, then immediately we're like, but what about me? Right? right? I'm not saying that you shouldn't want praise or affirmation. Those are, those are good God-given things, right? You want the, the love and admiration of people who you love or respect. But, but, but can, can, you, can you crawl into your heart for a second and see how well, we all want attention at some level? Even if you're shy and introvert, you want the, the love and affirmation and the, the worship in one sense of other people. We're all born with a bent towards self-glory at some level. And these ways and many more expose that we too look to worship like Nebuchadnezzar does. Now let's continue. See, the local Babylonian nobility and the officers were pre- pretty jealous of Daniel. And so to their luck, they noticed that 
Daniel and his friends, or Daniel was not here at that time. He's maybe on a trip. There's scholars debate exactly where he was, but that they see that they're not worshiping, so they snitch on them. And so think about this scene. Think about this. 80 feet in the air, this statue, thousands of people, okay, way bigger than this group, surrounding this statue. They're playing these bagpipes and lyres and trigon, whatever that is, and everyone is bowing down. Everybody is bowing down, except three. Can you imagine the social pressure? I mean, just think about this. Just take this group right here and multiply it by like 50. Just see if people, and then just three guys standing. You can imagine how insane that would feel. You can imagine maybe other people in France saying, Shadrach, Meshach, Benigo. Man, your names are so long. Just bow this once. <laughs> just this one time. God knows your heart. Just bow on the outside, but not on the inside. You can imagine some jealously longing to have the same kind of courage because there are many other Jews. You can imagine some looking with horror, some with anger. How dare them not bow? You can imagine some Jews whispering him say, hey, listen, hey, just bow. You're in a strategic position in the kingdom. God needs you there. You can compromise because God will use you in your position. Fudge on this this time. God gets it. He'll wink at it. You can imagine the pressures. What would you do if you were in their shoes? Imagine thousands of people around you, friends and family members, bowing down, and yet you know that you must stand. See, because remember, with culture, with the world, we can redeem, reject, or receive. And they knew they could not redeem this, and they knew they could not receive it, so they must reject this worship. What would you do? And it's very difficult for us to imagine what we would do because you've never been in that situation, right? But you don't have to be in that situation to know what you would do. See, whenever you see someone do something heroic and courageous, something so epic, that one moment is just the tip of the iceberg of millions of moments, little moments of courage and integrity and humility in the quiet, in the secret, and very few people or if no one sees that build up to that moment of that courageous moment. Do you know what I'm saying? They didn't just wake up one day and were courageous. They were doing that day after day, day for years, building that courage, building their convictions of what is true and what is false. And then it culminated in that one moment and opportunity. See, you don't need to wait until you are put in a situation where you could be burned alive. You already see daily, demonstrations of where your heart lies. In this last week, was there any time where you felt you ought to do something, but you didn't because of fear of the consequences? Whether it's fear of rejection or ridicule or loss of favor of someone you want to impress, whatever you did in that moment, it demonstrated what you would likely do in a macro insane moment like this. It was a little glimpse of your heart because whatever is in your heart, the roots of your heart will turn into fruit. And that big fruit of that moment for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was cultivated for years. Good root. And your roots are being shown through the fruit of your lips, the fruit of your actions, the 
fruit of your worship, your time, your energy, your priorities all the time. So you don't need to give yourself a hard pass and say, well, I don't know. Who knows? Who knows what we're doing? No one knows what we're doing this one. No, you do get a glimpse of what you would do by what you did today. It goes both ways. Let, let, me, let me just get real, because I know I'm, I sometimes get on people who um, you know, are holding back from worship in here, just musical worship, because you're afraid of what your friends think. But it goes the other way. There are some of you here where Isaiah, the prophet, say, you worship with me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And because your friends worship, you worship. And guess what? The moment your friend group changes when you go to college, you'll just do what those friends do because your heart isn't there. So it goes both ways. You could be a hypocrite on both sides. Some of you want to worship God, but you're so terrified because all you do is care what your friends think. And the other side, some of you guys are doing this, and you're like, oh, oh, we're still, oh okay, we're still doing this? Okay, 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 now I can put my hands up because I, you know, you know what I'm saying? It goes both ways. We need God helping us to expose and to show these areas of our hearts that are just so given to the praise and love of man over him. No, let's keep going. We'll go back to this. Let's see the king's response. Verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. What is he filled with? Rage. Rage is often the normal emotion People feel when their idol is touched. And his idol is himself. He loves himself. If you've ever, like, gone crazy or you've seen a friend, like, just erupt in, in rage over something, you're like, whoa, whoa, where'd that come from? It's likely it touched a nerve, and it's that nerve, you follow that nerve, it gets to an idol. It gets to what they truly love the most and treasure the most. And if you just flip out and lose your mind over something, it's likely it's touching a nerve. And we've seen the nerve of King Nebuchadnezzar because it's rooted to his idol. But verse 14 and 15, the king himself, he thinks he's a reasonable, merciful guy. And by the way, these Jews have been super valuable and helpful. So he's going to give one more chance. At the end of his repeal, you'll actually see him say this. And who is the God who would deliver you out of my hands? Just so arrogant. Neb thinks he's something and God is about to humble him again and show him that his perceived strength is just an illusion. Let's see how they respond to Neb's threats. This is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Verse 16. Would you read this out loud with me? It's so good. Let's read it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. They cannot flex here. Worship of him is not something they can receive or deem, so they reject it. Notice again this third way, respectful defiance. They have their convictions, but they're respectful. And they're ultimately seeking to love and honor God and Nebuchadnezzar. Did you hear what I just said? They're seeking to love and honor God and love Nebuchadnezzar. Why would I say they're trying to love Nebuchadnezzar? Wouldn't loving him be giving him what he wants? Wouldn't loving Nebuchadnezzar worshiping because that's what he truly longs to have from them? Well, consider this. Worshiping 
Nebuchadnezzar and his image is actually bad for the king. It's actually the worst thing possible for the king. For him to be further into himself and further his narcissistic complex and glory in himself when he was made for another. He exists for God's glory. It would be the most unloving thing to give glory to a man who's trying to find glory instead of find glory in God. And so, they're actually loving him. You must, listen carefully, you must reject the culture's belief that loving someone is always affirming whatever they deem best in their own eyes. If you've ever studied the book of Judges, what's that line over and over again? They did whatever was best in their eyes. We can be like these friends and lovingly disagree with your friends and family and co-workers with love and still hold to what is true. I just really want to challenge you students. I know that we live in strange times. I live in Minneapolis. It's, it is crazy. But you can lovingly disagree with someone respectfully and that's actually the most loving thing you can do. You can do it gently and respectfully. Don't fall into the trap that whatever they want and affirm whatever they want is actually loving. That is not biblical. That is not true love. Just like no, you would, none of you guys here would think I would be a good parent if I just gave whatever my kids ever wanted, right? Like, that's just logical, right? That'd just be insane. My kids would die within a week, right? <laughs> of a sugar overdose, they wouldn't sleep. Their eyes would fall out from all the t screen time they would have. None of you would think, oh, yeah, yeah, you are a loving parent when you do whatever your kids want. As if our kids, my kids, in their young ages can, can have the full wisdom of all of life to know exactly what's good for them. How many of you here would slap the younger you across the head just two years ago and say, how dumb you are, right? Right? Any of you? You, so dumb, man, right? But two years ago, you, you thought you were smart, Right? You thought you were pretty wise and you got things together. And guess what? You're that now. <laughs> we just think that we're always arriving. And then two years later, we're like, man, I was dumb. But I got it now. And then two years from now, you're going to be like, dang, I was dumb. And that's the part of maturity, just growing up and realizing how dumb you are and how much you don't know. That's reality. And so just because you believe your self-perception, just even psychologists, you don't even need to be, believe in the Bible. Even psychologists and sociologists will say that everyone has a strong bias of self-deception. You do not see reality correctly. You may think you're something, but the reality is often we're deceived about it. And the thing about deception that's so tricky is that when you're deceived, you do not know it. And so please reject the culture's lie that unconditional affirmation of whatever someone thinks is good for themselves is loving. You unconditionally love them, 100%. But that does not mean you always support every single thing they do, just like they could not support Neb in all that he wanted for himself. Because that wouldn't be loving to God or them. <laughs> that was a long, I have like two sentences, and I just talked for like 10 minutes about that, right? <laughs> I love how Eugene Peterson, the author of the, the message commentary, says in Daniel 3.18, he says it like this. But even if he doesn't, talking about Yahweh, if, even if Yahweh doesn't, it wouldn't make a bit of difference, O king. We still wouldn't serve your gods or worship the God gold statue you set up. Essentially, they're saying God can and may rescue us, but even if he doesn't, we will worship him alone. 
remember, they are committed to faithfulness, not results. And that is something that is so difficult in the Western church that you have to uproot out of your theology, if that's what you believe, that your Christianity is based on it works. That's why so many churches are a mess. Well, we do this because it works. And if you live your Christian life like it works, you will never stand in the midst of trials because it doesn't work when you're in trials. When you're being persecuted, it's not working, kind of hurts. They're committed to faithfulness to Yahweh no matter what. Scary truth is that many Christians would fail at a similar test. We serve God as long as it serves us. The moment our true God, let me just, another side note. God, help me not do this long. You know how right now, more and more, people have all these polls, like, America is no longer Christian, and there's more and more post-Christian, and evangelicals are pulled to not believe in the Bible, and this and that. You, you guys have seen those things, or people talk about that, and just people are so scared about that. It's just exposing what we were. It's like all these people who love Jesus are all of a sudden not loving Jesus. It's just, by and large, there are some of those, but it's, by and large, it's just exposing that we actually didn't really know him, didn't really love him, and the, and, and the cultural winds and changes shifted us. And for, for a long time, it was cool to be culturally Christian, but it wasn't true worship, true adoration, And it's just being swept and exposed right now. The moment our true God or idols are tested, we abandon God. If you want to know what your idol may be, it's really hard to understand, but here's one test you can do. If God doesn't give you blank, you question his goodness and abandon allegiance to him. Let let me put it up on the screen real quick. Here's a way to think about it. God, I love you, but if you don't give me blank, I don't trust you. Think about that. Just think about that. If you don't give me health or wealth or relationship or success in sports or school or affirmation from my dad who's a deadbeat or someone in church to treat me rightly, if you don't blank, I don't trust you. And if you can answer that blank, you now know a good idea of what your idol may be that you prioritize over God. And if that's the case, it's a really good question to ask during cabin time and throughout this week. If this is the case and you are not okay with it, because if you're a Christian, you're born again, the Holy Spirit abides in you, this should be uncomfortable. And let me just be real with you. This is me regularly. This is not something you're like, oh yeah, I remember in 89 when I had an idol and then I went to camp and it's gone. No, it just comes back. The French theologian John Calvin says our hearts are idol factories, just making up new ones, like stupid ones all the time. And so like, this is me right now. Like there's a situation in my church that's deeply painful and I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm given towards anger, a few situations. And I'm like, God, what, what is this exposing in my heart? It's so easy for idols to take supremacy of our heart, just crawl right back on the throne of God's heart, uh, of, of, of our heart where God belongs. So just ask yourself, like, God, what is that thing that if you don't give it to me, Or if it goes this way, I just don't really believe or trust you. And if that's you and you're uncomfortable with that, that's the reality, but you don't want that to be true, you can flip it to a prayer like this. Next slide, please. God, you are able to blank. Heal, restore, give, provide, whatever it is. But even if you don't, Even if you don't, I will trust you. 
and worship you and love you. If you're uncomfortable with the idols that are being exposed in your heart this week, or idols that you know that have just been in your life for a while, turn into a prayer like this. doesn't mean that you've perfectly arrived overnight, but you're saying, God, this is where I'm at. God, I know you're able to blank, but even if you don't, I'll love you and trust you and worship you. You can write that out in your notes and something worthy to talk about with trusted friends who love Jesus, counselor or pastor. Now back to the story. As you can imagine, Neb has a problem with her defiance, and I need to pick up the pace. In response, Neb is filled with rage, as we saw, and he heats the furnace seven times hotter than it normally is, which is probably figurative to being as hot as humanly possible. It's so hot that the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are being thrown and carried into this furnace. It sounds like they go upwards. And the mighty men, some just giant, like, you just imagine, just yoked guys, who are, are soldiers, are t- carrying them up. Yeah, don't look at me. Like, yeah, that was bad. Like, I did this <laughs> as if, like, look at me. <laughs> no. uh, look at not me, okay? Um, look at that guy that was doing that and carried that guy back there. Yeah, that, yeah like him, except bigger, okay? <clears throat> and they're carrying Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're, about to, they're, they're trying to throw them into the furnace, and they successfully do, but they're so close because the flame is seven times hotter that they die. I mean, that's hot. And yet, as you know the narrative, if you do, they're, they're not dead. <laughs> and there's a fourth that appears among them. And we're going to get to that in a second. But I want to talk about fire for a second. See, because the furnace may not be random. It's random maybe for Nebuchadnezzar, but it's actually often used throughout the Bible as a way to help us understand um, something that God uses. God uses fire throughout the Bible both usually figuratively, but sometimes physically, in order to do three things. Let me just share with you quickly. It is judgment for some, purifying or refining for believers, and revealing for all. Okay, so judgment for some, refining for believers, and revealing for all. Let me, let me say this quickly. In verse 22, we see that, that, that this fire actually judges these wicked soldiers who are carrying out the king's bidding. It's judgment upon them. See, the same fire can do multiple things for multiple kinds of people. Second category, refining for believers. Throughout the Bible, we, use, we see that fire figuratively and physically sometimes is used by God to purify his people, especially when they're wayward, to expose, just like a, a, a fire in a furnace will melt gold that has impurities to purify it. God uses fire to bring life and healing and wholeness and purity to his people. And finally, number three, revealing for all. God uses fire often to expose and reveal who his real children are. And what we see is that Nebuchadnezzar and those mighty men are not his children. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are his. God revealed to the whole Babylonian court who was witnessing this and to the king that these men are mine. They're my kids. It exposed that at the depths of their heart, what showed in these men is that God was their ultimate treasure and joy, not their own preferences, not their own life. So, so, so know this, Christians here, just because you're in a fire doesn't mean that God is not pleased with you. Actually, this passage shows us that God is actually pleased with them, and he's using this opportunity to show how good they are and how pleased he is with them and to showcase his power. We see this in 1 Peter 4.12. One of the most, this is a familiar verse for a lot of Christians, but 
I mean, no one really takes it seriously. Because look at, look at 1 Peter 4.12. Dear friends, would you read this out loud? Dear friends, don't be... Who's heard of that verse before? Raise your hand. Like seriously, everyone here. Who's heard that verse? Okay. Now, those who just rose your hand, raise your hand. Rose. How many of you are still surprised when you have trials? <laughs> I'm raising my hand, right? We're like, yeah, I know this verse. It's on a Christian cup in my house, right? And yet we're like, what's going on, God? Life is hard. I can't tell you how many, every time I, I teach at Hume, I have students come up to me and they tell me how they lost their faith or they struggle with God because they're going through a trial. And it's like, yeah, I get that. I, and I'm deeply, I don't say it like this because I'm, I'm deeply compassionate for them. I get that you would struggle, but it actually doesn't make sense. It only makes sense if God says that their life wouldn't have trials, right? Then distrust him. <laughs> if he's like, I promise you will never have trials. I'm like, yeah, don't believe in him because our lives are full of trials. <laughs> but he told you, you will have trials, he tells you, he's, you're gonna be, if anyone desires to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. And then when it happens, we're like, what's going on? <laughs> Christians are losing their minds in our country. We're going to boycott Starbucks and boycott Target and boycott everyone who takes away our Christian rights. As if God didn't tell us this is going to happen. All right, I can't get into that. Some of you guys, <laughs> some of you guys are going to get mad at me. They're like, I boycott Starbucks? <laughs> Don't be surprised. Fire is normal for Christians. The fire destroys you or it refines you. The fire shows you are one of his or shows that you are not. It either makes you more like Jesus or shows that you never really loved Jesus. For the Christians here, what is the most difficult trial in your life at this moment? And are you tempted to see it as a judgment rather than a trial? What would change if you viewed it as a refining fire, as proving the genuineness of your faith, and how valuable God is to you. Just a quick story. I know I'm going long, and I'm going to try to steward this time better, but there was a, there was a pastor and professor of the graduate school I went to, and uh, he, he lost his son, um, son was only like 26. His name was Alex, and he was going to the seminary as well. And uh, his son died uh, tragically. Hmm. And I remember being in chapel maybe just a week later. And um, I was standing behind this guy. His name is Chuck, Pastor Chuck. And he was singing. There, The song was all is for your glory. All is for your name. And then the bridge goes, my God, my joy, my delight. And he was just worshiping. And his daughter was next to him too, just worshiping. And I remember seeing that and just crying, saying, they get it. Like they, God is more valuable than the preciousness of their brother or their son. And I'm not saying that God doesn't weep at that death. I'm not saying that's okay, that's good. God's going to redeem and kill death once for all. But what that showed in that moment, that God was more valuable than them to the, than anything else in the world. 
And sometimes you don't really have confidence in your salvation until you have those moments. I'm not saying it needs to be a death, but those moments where the most precious thing in your life, I remember, this happened to me when I was 20, I'm not going to get details, but when I was 20 years old, the most precious idol in my life was ripped, and I said, God, you're still my God. I still worship you. I still trust you, even though I don't get it and it hurts. It's only until you have those moments in your life that you really have that confidence. Like, no, I'm real. I really do love God more than anything else. But until you have those moments, really hard to know because you can just be doing it because your family or your friends or your church. Now let's get back into this, and I need to close with this. Um, verse 24 and 25, we see that they are astonished. And look at verse 24 and 25. Let me actually read this here with you. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to the counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. This phrase, the son of the gods, um, it's tricky because throughout the book of Daniel, you see Babylonians say these statements about what God is like, and they're, they're kind of right, but they're often not right. They're confused, but they're seeing something. And it's interesting because in verse 11 of chapter 2, I want to show you on the screen real quick. Um, as the, the king's diviners are trying to figure out the dream, they say, the king, the thing that the king asked is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. That's a fact, king. Gods don't dwell in flesh. And they're right. Except one time. Except one time. God comes in flesh. As a baby. In the incarnation the Son of God entered our dirty, broken, wicked world and took on flesh, and not just took on flesh, took on our problems, took on our struggles, took on trials and suffering and famine and pimples and insecurities and struggles. Hebrews says he was tempted in every kind of way, yet did not sin. See, what I believe is happening in this fire furnace, this fourth figure, is a taste of the future Christ. Scholars call these in the Old Testament Christophanies. Christophanies. Literally Christ appearings. I believe this is a pre-incarnate Christ giving us a taste of the future. See, here's the beauty of the gospel and here's the beauty of, of, of God. Listen, if I could have your, your eyes for a second. I'd really appreciate that. Not because I'm so good, but just uh, I'd appreciate that because this is really important. A lot of us here struggle with the problem of evil. You, you will often ask, hey, if God is so good, why, why is life so hard? And there's a lot of, or, or evil or wicked, why is this, why is that? And those are really, really valuable, true, good things to wonder about. And there's a lot of good answers and good theories behind it. But one of the best answers I've ever heard is this. Is whatever you can say about the wisdom of God, the fairness of God, like he's playing this big game with us. What you can't say is that he's not playing fair or playing by his own rules. See, because what God does in Christ, in the incarnation, is that he doesn't just from afar say, hey, live a holy life, be loyal to me, even if you go, go into a fire, you know, like he just says, you know what, I, you fail, and I get that, and you deserve punishment. And so instead of letting you just fall on your face, I'm gonna actually come, and I'm gonna get in your mess with you, I'm not going to just from afar try to help you or encourage you and you have to work your way to get to me. I'm actually going to enter into your mess and I'm going to suffer. I'm going to live in, in relatively 
poverty. I'm going to be betrayed by my best friends. I'm going to suffer like no man has ever suffered. And so that you will never be alone one day and accepted, I will be forsaken. And then on the cross, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus on the cross was the most alone man in that moment in the universe so that you and I could never have to be alone. See, what God does in the gospel is that he doesn't just say, hey, let me help you. No, he says, I'm gonna get in the fire with you. I'm gonna enter in the furnace with you and suffer with you. We often pray that God will take us out of something, and sometimes he does, but often he wants to take us through something. But he doesn't just do it on your own. Say, hey, here's a backpack, figure it out. I'll see you on the other side. He said, I'm going to hold your hand and walk you through it. He suffers with us. See, no matter what pain you're going through in your life, and I I can't imagine how many different pains and traumas and sufferings are in this room, know that God suffers with you. Jesus weeps, he, he hurts, and he's right there with you, even though all the answers and all the solutions don't seem immediate appear, immediately there. That's the, that's the beauty of the gospel. God is able to get you over anything, but usually he'll get you through it. And you may be going through a furnace right now, but Christian, take hope. He is with you. And that is the beauty of the gospel, is that God gets down right there with us. And not just with us, he takes what we deserve because we deserve punishment for all of our different ways that we've rejected his authority, his good authority and rule, trying to be our own King Nebuchadnezzar's in so many different ways. And instead of God punishing us for what we are treacherous ways, he punishes himself. He says, I'll take the punishment for them. I will take what they deserve. I mean, this is is the the greatest news, the goodest news. Can you think of something better that a God would take your punishment for you and then stand not just with you, but for you? That's the God that we have. So let's end there. There's a lot more in chapter three. Read it for yourself. Check my work. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Jesus, for being so good. Oh, goodness, Lord, I'm so bad at time management. Oh. But Lord, I trust that, that, that you would use what your word says good and if there's anything i said that was off would you correct me and that no one would remember it but father i do pray that what is true would deeply shape us and if there's if you are revealing in in these campers idols in their heart things that they're not able to let go that you'd give them strength and courage to let it go and trust you and be able to say god you are able to do that but even if you don't i'll worship love you and follow you and trust you i pray that you would help there be a, just a, a honesty in this camp this week, just taking off the mask and just being vulnerable and real with you and with each other of where we're really at. And thank you, Jesus, that you get in our mess and you walk with us, that you don't leave us alone, that you were forsaken so that we could ever, forever be with us. And we long for the day where faith turns to sight and we get to see you face to face forever. In Jesus' name, amen.